You're listening to a Corridor Business Journal podcast. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Corridor Media Group's Diversity Straight Up podcast. This is definitely an episode you don't want to miss as you're going to find out how the League of United Latin American Citizens helped the Hispanic Latino community navigate through a tragic murder that was committed by an undocumented Mexican immigrant. You are going to hear from a leader who has been in this social justice space for over 40 years and talk about the accomplishments and what keeps him going. In addition, you're also going to find out where is Puerto Rico in the progress for Puerto Rico to become the 51st state of the United States to be able to truly advance equality for the U.S. citizens of Puerto Rico? Lots and lots of good stuff. It's going to be fun. Tune in, as we always say on Diversity Straight Up. Keeping it real. For more than six decades, ACT has advanced its mission of helping people achieve education and workplace success. We exist to fight for fairness in education and create a world where everyone can discover and fulfill their potential. Education has power, a power that can change lives forever. It creates opportunities that lift up individuals and their families, and it sparks societal change that echoes through generations to come. From our grassroots, we have fought the good fight for equity in education, and we remain devoted to helping anyone who struggles to access that power. We are all in to create a world that values and encourages each individual's abilities and potential in a society that is fairer and more equitable. What's next for you? A new car? A new house? A vacation? At Alliant Energy, we're planning what's next for your energy by adding more renewable energy sources, embracing new technology, building stronger communities, and providing you with more options. We're not just powering homes and businesses. We're powering what's next for you. Learn more at AlliantEnergy.com slash powering what's next. The phrase people you can bank on, it kind of embodies our legacy. What I think that means is we care about our clients, we care about our community, and we care for each other. Having been in business for over 20 years and uh, explored all possibilities of financing and you know banking relationships, I have found that the people at Cedar Rapids Bank and Trust are people that you can really bank on. Welcome to another episode of the Corridor Media Group's Diversity Straight Up, sponsored by ACT, Alliant Energy, Cedar Rapids Bank and Trust. I am your host, Sarika Bakta, president of Nikea Diversity Consulting. And I am Anthony Arrington, managing partner of Top Rank. And we are about to have a really, really good show today. Uh, we are going to get under the hood with diversity, equity, inclusion, and engagement from the lens of LULAC, the League of United Latin American Citizens. We've got Joe Enrique Henry with us today. He's a graduate of Iowa State and has worked in various capacities from electric pointed positions to International Brotherhood of Teamsters to the to LULAC and Forward Latino. Uh, he's also served in Washington D headquarters at some time in his career for the International Brotherhood of Teamsters working for various capacities including that historical national strike uh, against the United Parcel Service in 1997. That was 186 Teamsters and drivers in that in that strike. From 99 to 03 
Joe managed issues from campaigns in Iowa, ranging from city council to con congressional, and a statewide effort to stop English-only legislation in 2001. 2012, as a state director for LULAC, he worked with the ACLU to take on a two-year battle against the Secretary of State who attempted to suppress the vote against Latinos and other minorities. Uh, he led that five-year statewide voter outreach effort, and that culminated into tens of thousands of additional registered Latino voters. And that was the first-ever database of identified registered Latino voters ever. And that was a record turnout in, in the 2016 presidential caucuses. And currently, uh, Mr. Enriquez Henry is working on voting rights as a national consumer uh, boycott of the meat products, uh, boycottmeat.com, uh, with a coalition of activists to support the slaughterhouse workers who face high infection rates and deaths due to the COVID-19 and unsafe working conditions. And that's contributed to the, to the virus spread. And that coalition is calling for immediate structural changes in food processing and adopting mandatory regulation and, and a, a transition to plant-based food. Joe has done so many things, Mr. Enrique Henry. He was awarded the Lewis Noun Award for the American Civil Liberties Union of Iowa and the 2017 LULAC Cesar Chavez Leadership Award for work on Latino voter engagement. Mr. Enrique Henry, you have done quite a bit. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Anthony. And when you hit age 66, you will have completed a lot. <laughs> <laughs> we never give up. We yes. Never give up. So, yeah, it's good to be here. Thank you. And, Thank uh, you for looking for forward us. to our discussion. And yes, I mean, as you know, as we fight for social justice, civil rights, you know, my, my period of time spans 40 plus years. Love it. Uh, Love you it. learn a lot and, and uh, you participate in a lot of different things. So, it's Love fortunate. It. For me that I've been able to participate in many of those things. Well, we look forward to chatting with you. Well, thank you so much, Joel. We're very excited to have you on the show. You have an impressive uh, resume with uh, making an impact and looking forward to getting uh, into it a little bit further. Before sure. we go into that, uh, something's been on my mind. There's something on my mind. I am seeing what's unfolding in Iran and uh, looking at the mass protest uh, in terms of uh, girls, women, men, everyone just being able to stand up for freedom, life, and liberty, and um, seeing a stand-up that is occurring with such an oppressive uh, regime is making me feel good. Doesn't make me feel good in terms of the atrocities that are happening when people are standing up and using their own voice to stand up uh, with uh, a repressive regime. Yet, I'm feeling um, and I'm feeling good because I'm seeing people standing up and united. And you're seeing this hashtag where we stand with the women of Iran. In terms of making a difference, people are losing their lives. Deaths are occurring. And when you're thinking about how do people control somebody else in terms of how they dress, how they talk, walk. Iran is a one example. You've seen this around the world, how people are oppressing others. I just wanted to just uh, take some time to say that's been on my mind, seeing something like that happening in Iran, because no, no longer is what's happening in another part of the world not having an impact on us, and we should be standing up in solidarity for humanity. I love 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 when i see people stand up and fight back i love when human beings decide we've had enough i know it's dangerous i don't even know what it's like to be 
from Iran, but I, I, I empathize and think about our own experiences. To your point, Cedric, it's global. This is not just happening in Iran, and it's it's really sad. Telling you what to wear in your head, that's it. Just blows me away. I, so thanks for bringing that up. It's it's yeah. And I'm not talking about in terms of, you know, wearing the hijab, you know, as part of the religion, if that's what you believe in, then you should. And I think that being able to have a choice makes a big difference. So if this and that what is that's what it comes down to is being able to have Mm -hmm. the choice and not feeling as if um, I think I learned a lot in terms of even like the morality police and how that is an official uh uh, segment of the police force there and I'm thinking that how would the mo- morality police how does that work and how you know um, do you have to walk in someone else's lived experience with that around you and so I have a lot of lot of empathy because I always think about morality police sometimes we think oh yeah well the community society is a morality police but when you're in a you know in a community where there's an actual morality police that is enforced and is part of the legal system what Mm -hmm. does that look like so it's heartbreaking too when I think about that and so there's a lot that goes into what is happening in terms of breaking down the systems etc and I'm not trying to judge but I always think about if I'm in their lived you know experiences how would that make me feel yeah yes Joe I'm glad you brought that up because in 1979 when I was in college uh, we had here in Iowa in Des Moines uh, a number of young people from Iran who uh at that point, the revolution was happening, the revolution, which was a progressive mm-hmm. revolution in Iran, which then uh, unfortunately turned into a regressive counter-revolution. Um, so that was a very interesting period. There was a lot of progressive ideas that were happening in Iran during that period of time. Uh, and really, uh, it is not surprising to see people speaking up in Iran at this point, because that type of effort has been going on for decades there, but due to the repression that happened uh, with the counter-revolution back in the uh, early 80s, um, that is what unfortunately has led to having to to fight so hard and to fight to the death um, in these demonstrations and protests. Yeah, Yeah, it's unfortunate, but again, yeah. Thanks for bringing that up, Cedric. Thanks for your your comments. It's, um, It's tough. It's tough, but I think when people rise up, it makes a difference. And uh, well, you can't stop progress. No. You know that's the thing is you when can't. we look at our history, uh, you know, movements have happened uh, due to the fact that ideas do get uh, uh, put put forward and people build coalitions yeah. uh, along broad bases. Yep. And that's the key coalition building. Yeah. It takes us all to be able to collectively yeah. stand up. Yeah. Well, let's talk about you, Joe. Let's uh, let's, let's uh, and by the way, I want to make sure that uh, is it. Do you go by Joe Enrique Henry? Do you go by Joe? Do you go by Enrique? What would you like? Whatever, whatever <laughs> way people want to bring up. Sometimes they say Joe Henry Enrique. Right. You know, it just, just the average Joe, Joe right? Just Joe. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I grew up in I grew up in Iowa, but uh, grew up in a Latino household. My dad. I, unfortunately, I never got to know him. He died when I was very young. He was Irish, uh, but, uh, but so that didn't happen, unfortunately. So raised in a Latina household uh, with many aunts and an uncle. 
and uh, lots of tortillas, beans, and rice, and discussions. <laughs> mm, making, a lot of compassion. Yum, yum. Making me hungry already <laughs> I'm here. Hungry. Yeah, right. Yeah. But, you know, we had a sense of community, and, and that was something that stuck with me from the early age on. Um, I was the first to go to college. I worked uh, in warehouses, worked at UPS. It got me through college. Uh, Iowa State was where I graduated. But uh, a year after uh, graduation, while still working at UPS, uh, you know, I was committed to getting involved in social justice. So in 1982 was kind of my springboard year. Uh, I got to know uh, uh, some really neat people who uh, in the black and brown communities who were my mentors. Edna Griffin was one of the key mentors for me here in Iowa. Uh, uh, Angela Davis behind here in 1984. She went to, she came to Iowa State to speak to us about uh, the fight within the black community and about building broad coalitions. So meeting people at a young age, which was very important, listening to Edna, to Angela, to to people in labor, Mary Campos, and so forth, hearing their stories of struggle, fighting for social justice, really uh, became part of me, and. Uh, you know what? I never look back. It's just, it has been just pushing, pushing, pushing yeah. over a 40 year period well, on fighting for things. And then, you know, at that time too, meeting young people from Iran, hearing them tell me about, you know, the plight, uh, how they had to fight against the Shah and uh, what they wanted to do. And then to have this counter revolution happen and not be able to go back to Iran. Yeah, Lebanon was another area too, which was a very beautiful area. And then all these wars broke out. But, you know, in the eighties too, you know, for, for the listeners in the 1980s, we had to deal with Reagan, Reaganomics, trickle down economics. We had to, we saw the, um, the reduction in federal programs, um, especially when it came to social services the attack on labor, uh, the attack on, on many fronts mm -hmm. involving people, um, which went from the 1980s into the 1990s. And it, unfortunately, uh, after three administrations uh, with Republicans, even with Clinton, we had to deal with some, uh, some very conservative positions, NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, we were fighting for healthcare for all. Hillary Clinton was fighting for that. And mm -hmm. then uh, uh, President Clinton didn't, didn't about face on us. And we were no longer fighting for that in the administration. So lots of different things. Yeah. Well, Joe, you mentioned something in terms of looking at uh, countries and um, the oppression and not having equality. Let's take a little different look in terms of uh, Puerto Rico. It's not an official state of the United States, yet they are U.S. citizens. We're not dealing with like an oppressive regime as, you know, some other countries are yet. If some people don't feel there is equality for U.S. citizens, wherever they may be, like, for example, in Puerto Rico, there is a big movement in terms of making Puerto Rico the 51st state and the statehood of it. So how do you feel about this national movement called PR 51st that is occurring? And um, also, more importantly, what is the sentiment um, in the Hispanic Latino communities? Well, clearly uh, in LULAC, we have supported uh, the movement uh, to make Puerto Rico the 51st state. It makes no sense 
for the 3 million plus people in Puerto Rico to not have the same rights as the people here on the mainland. We re Puerto Ricans refer to the, um, to the other states as the mainland. And uh, Puerto Ricans can't vote for president when they're in Puerto Rico, but if they come over to Florida and New York, they can vote for president. Does that make any sense? No. Uh, Puerto Ricans don't have a member in Congress. That makes no sense. Um, but yet again, they are US citizens. So to hold them hostage uh, to us is a form of enslavement and uh, we fully support uh, the movement for statehood and, and that was a resolution that was put forth uh, this last summer in Puerto Rico at our national convention. So I'm curious, uh, since that was put in place in terms of uh, the vote, and it seems as if uh, majority are wanting that, how does it feel on this side, on the mainland, as you had indicated, in terms of do you think this will come to fruition? It will has things change in Congress. You know, we you know we've been bringing this up. Uh, activists from Puerto Rico have been bringing this up for you know several decades now about uh, making Puerto Rico the 51st state. We continue to meet with members of Congress every year, but the flavor of Congress has not been at the point to really push this. There mm -hmm. is a bill in Congress, from what I understand, uh, to make Puerto Rico the 51st state. Um, what happens on November 8th will pretty much decide whether or not we can make that happen mm -hmm. in, in the coming year. So, uh, so this midterm election is going to determine that. You know, we have a big battle here. We have, you know, we have deniers, election right. deniers that we're having to deal with um, in Congress yeah. in various areas of the country. And, uh, and that type of movement goes counter to what we're trying to do uh, within the Latino community, especially in supporting Puerto Ricans. So, Joe, as you think about that, you're, 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 you're very active in politics and very active and as you know it's uh, as we're coming up on the elections as you said you know and uh we think about the state of iowa where you're leading as a lulac president here and the work that you've done here and, and having grown up and gone to school here you know what has it been like for you personally what's it been like for joe as an iowan as you think about it from the lens of a latino resident you know, how do you if you had to describe your experience here in in, in iowa growing up and compared to today, what is that like for you compared to other places that you've lived? Right. That, that, that's a, that's a really good catch. Now, now, technically speaking, I'm not the president for LULAC, Iowa. I am the state political director. Or state political director. I'm sorry. Sorry yeah. about that. Yes. But, uh, you know, uh, when I was working in DC in the nineties, uh, it really kind of added to my perspective and kind of changed the way I looked at things when I came back to Iowa. What I realized when I came back to Iowa after working on the Hill for the Teamsters Union from 92 to 99, when I came back, I, it was clear to me that what I thought would be a progressive flavor here in Iowa was not. We actually kind of live in silos here, no pun intended, but uh, we have this uh, kind of backward um, viewpoint here, Iowans do, and it's really unfortunate. It's, it's not to say that we don't have uh, forward-thinking people, but uh, people do kind of live in the past on their perspective here. We've had to deal with it. I mean, here we are, another area of 3 million people, 2 million registered Iowans uh, registered to vote, 
Um, and we have slid backwards over the last 20 years. We've gone from uh, progressive ideas to the laws, to the, the right um, the right of women to have an abortion, the, the right to vote without having any voter suppression, uh, without attacks on Latinos to, you know, which started happening 20 years ago to, you know, to Supreme Court decisions and then the state Supreme Court making its decision. So it's it's been it's been unfortunate and it's it's been surprising. I can tell you that, you know, as somebody now who's in his 60s looking back, I never realized how much suppression we had here or how much racism until looking at it now and, and the things that you know, people within our brown and black communities have tried to achieve and been held hostage on. Edna Griffin, again, was a friend of mine, a mentor who fought uh, to end segregation, who fought to, to make sure that people of all colors would be served in restaurants and public places. And, you know, here we are now having to deal with something similar to that. So it, it has been difficult. But I am hopeful, though, what we saw in 2020 with the protests and the marches across the country to fight for, um, to end uh, racial profiling, to end attacks on black people uh, by police, by law enforcement. I mean, that that really changed things across the country. It changed things here in Iowa. It, it really energized young people of, of different colors, uh, different backgrounds, different races. Um, so, things are changing mm -hmm. and, and, it, it, and it's going to continue right. to change. Right. So I am hopeful, sure. but it has been difficult over the last uh, couple of decades. So as a leader, I'm sorry, go ahead, Cedric. As, as a leader in, in, in the state, and you know, I would consider you a, a leader, what, 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 what suggestions would you have for our listeners who, who may be in positions of, of uh, who have leverage or, or power influence? They don't have to be a CEO of a company, but what, right. what would you suggest to some of those to, to help us turn that tide? I am glad that you asked that, and, I, and I'll try to explain it in a historical way. When we look at every fight that we have had over the last hundred years, it's always been the fight for the right to vote. Uh, you know, the, the civil rights struggle, the pre-civil rights struggle, uh, the power is in the election box, the power to vote. You know, we uh, changing laws, and, and it's always been about voting. Uh, sometimes people want to kind of go beyond that into a, a new utopia. But we're not going to get there without uh, making sure that people have the right to vote, that people do vote. Uh, when we look at Iowa, for example, in 2018, we had a midterm election. Uh, we had a Democrat running against uh, uh, Kim Reynolds, the governor. Uh, do you know how many votes the Democratic candidate lost by in 2018. He only lost, uh, Mr. Hubble, only lost by 37,000 votes. Kim Reynolds won at 50.3% of the vote then. Had, had, Hubble, had Fred Hubble, the uh, gubernatorial candidate for the Democrats, won that election, things would have been totally different now, especially when it came to state Supreme Court justices that have been appointed under the under mm -hmm. Kim Reynolds. Uh, so voting is very important. When we look at that 37,000 votes, 
That was the number of Democrats who did not vote in Polk County in 2018. Mm -hmm. Only 71% of registered Democrats in Polk County in 2018 voted. And that, and, and of that, 37,000, right. the other 29% did not vote. And that's just Democrats. We're not even talking about non-party. So Iowa is a very pivotal area. And here we are now with Dieter DeGier, who is running uh, as a Democrat uh, against Kim Reynolds. If she is elected, she will be the first black governor in our history, in our country, if she is elected. And when we look at 2018, 37,000 Democrats just in Polk County did not vote. Mm -hmm. There's tremendous power. And when we've looked at 2018, 2020, and now, yeah. more and more people have registered to vote, um, both um, sure. well across across the line, the Democrats, non-party, and Republicans, yeah. but more specifically, Democrats and non-party mm -hmm. voters. So you may not have known that, but that kind of kind of lets you know, but it sure. comes to social justice, civil rights, voting is the key, mobilizing for that, building coalitions to mobilize for the right to vote. That's what it right. was when Martin Luther King was marching in Alabama. It was the fight for the right to vote. It was also the fight for, uh, for uh, sanitary workers at that point. Yes. Um, and it was always about voting. And that's the thing that we really have to focus on. Thank we want social that. justice. We want change. We must vote and we must help others understand the importance of voting, even though there might not be an immediate result for many working people uh, after an election. In the long term, there mm -hmm. will be. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Joe, for providing your feedback and um, uh, your suggestion in terms of uh how folks can get involved. I was a pre-law poli-sci major and I'm all about civic engagement. Um, I don't, I personally don't care what party lines people vote because I want people to get out there and vote. We're a democratic country at the end of the day. And if we're really trying to be able to uphold the democratic process, that means voting rights for all. And I think that that is, at the end, the fair game for me is we should all be able to vote for how we want to. Right. Um, I think the divisiveness of uh, topics, issues, and not being able to collaborate um, is where I really, um, uh, it, it uh, gives, it's not even a heartburn, it makes me sad. Democracy is something. Right. Democracy is something that I don't take lightly. When you're seeing what's happening around the world, right? And so, I think right. that if you have the opportunity to vote, um, please do so. And um, yeah. that's the democratic process. Right. You know, I always also um, see. I, I, I'm an immigrant, and um, seeing an increase in uh, immigration, changing demographics of the United States. Last year, 50 million. Immigrants is what the United States embraced. Compared to any other country around the world, the second, I think, I can't remember what country it is, but it's 15 million. So you're looking at 50 to the next country in the around the world at 15. There's no apples to apples comparison. I We also know that the changing demographics is happening for the United States. Change can be very challenging for folks. I also know that when incidents, tragedies happen, that's when biases go up. So I want to take a little bit of time to talk about uh, the 
the the tragic murder that had happened with Molly Tibbetts by an undocumented Mexican immigrant in Iowa that not only shook our state, but the nation as a whole, because that was a sad, sad tragedy that had happened. Um, it also did continue to heighten the national debate about the country's um, immigration and immigration reform laws. How did uh, LULAC help the Hispanic Latino community navigate uh, through through this um, incident and this tragedy? Right. Well, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, that uh, that was a very, that was a very tragic situation, and of course, there was an attack on the immigrant community at that point. So we immediately responded through press releases, through discussions with uh, news people about that, and we made it very clear this this was. Uh, a tragic situation that occurred with the assailant being an individual. He was not uh, a representative of the immigrant community or a Latino. This was done by an individual. And we made that very clear. And we were thankful that the Tippett's family also gave a lot of support and had noted that they had had a family member who was also married to a Latina. And uh, so, and really wrote some, some good, uh, responses in the Des Moines Register and, and did interviews, again, to indicate that this had nothing to do with the immigrant community or the Latino community. And as a matter of fact, the Latino community, as they had noted in the immigrant community, was a very caring and compassionate community. So we spent a lot of time, again, talking with the media, uh, holding events where we had discussions, but having an immediate response was important because, um, People wanted to hear our side of the story. Uh, this was also the time that uh, Trump was, uh, the president at that time, was promoting hate, had, had been promoting hate for some time. So we had to deal with that. We also had to deal with death threats. We had to deal with uh, these robocalls that people were getting uh, that had a statement about kill them all, kill them all. Um, and that was scary. That was oh. really scary. Yeah. It's, uh, we had uh, some um, um, food service uh, businesses really either have to close down or had to protect themselves because of attacks. You know, here in Des Moines, where I'm at, we had people with hate in their heart go into uh, restaurants, coffee shops that were Latino owned wow. and, and state some very mm -hmm. terrible things. Uh, things were spray painted on streets. Uh, we responded by putting up billboards, talking about how we were one Des Moines, one community, how we needed to be united. And we did get support from the business community too. They did come to our aid and we were, we were thankful for that. So, you know, that, those things, we have to realize that we need to respond immediately when hateful things happen, because that's not who we are as a community. Joe, thank yep. you for sharing in terms of uh, the response, but also in terms of how the community uh, stood in uh, solidarity in the sense that an act by one doesn't represent um, everyone. And I think that's a very big, that's an important uh, thing to continue to remind us when it comes to any kind of incident. 
that a lot of times it's easy for um, people to think, oh, well, if this person did it, others are going to be doing it or that's represents uh, the group, et cetera. And we really need to start, you know, continue to be thinking about, well, that's not representing everyone. And that's across the board with everything that we're seeing going yeah. on here. So yeah. thank and you I so much. And I think it's important, statistically yep. speaking, and, and we did bring this up to the rate of crime is significantly lower amongst immigrants mm-hmm. and has been shown over and over again. Yeah. Not only the percentage of crime is significantly lower, but when it comes to these type of incidences, extremely lower. So this was a very sure. uh, unique situation. But again, by an individual, mm-hmm. not a community, right. not by immigrants, right. not by statements that Trump had right. uh, put out there when he was running for office. Joe, what keeps you... What keeps you moving? You mentioned you, know, you started this conversation today with I'm 66 years old. I've been doing this for 40 years. That we Sadika and I talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, engagement, belonging as a as a journey. That we know that as long it's not like building widgets in a manufacturing plant. But I imagine that there are days when you just want to just go fishing and retire and, and and not do what. What keeps Joe going? What What would you offer to others and that are doing the work that you do, uh, mm-hmm. that would help them. Uh, well, you know, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. You know, in the family that I was raised in, it was always about love. It was always about community, telling stories of compassion, dancing in the living room with my aunts. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it was just so loving. Working in warehouses, driving trucks. You know, working alongside people who were very. Uh, giving, compassionate, you know, I, I did not see the world through a boardroom or through self-interest. I saw it through community. It's, I saw it through love. And, you know, the, the thing that was clear to me and, and, and it was very clear when I was going to college and uh, at Iowa State, even at DMAC and afterwards is that we are dealing, you know, in, in a society, in a system that really, uh, really put pits people against each other, and and that goes counter to, to our nature. I mean, you when you look at Native Americans, Indigenous community, communities, for example, I mean, clearly thousands of years of, of working together, respect for land, respect for each other, respect for animals. So you know, it's not in our DNA to hate each other. And that was clear to me before before college and afterwards working in social justice, how people come together, but we have to fight. You know, the Native Americans felt that being rich was a form of a mental illness. You know, we have to fight greed. We have to place people first, the environment uh, and, and all the animals uh, that live on our earth and, um, you know, I know we can do it. You know, other countries have shown that we can do it. Yeah. You know, there's always been a fight for equality, fight for coming together. But we do we do live in a country that uh, places greed before need. And, uh, and that's something that I know, you know, when I go to bed at night, I might be exhausted thinking that things are go- aren't going to change. But when I wake up the next day, I know that we can do this. And, and I've seen others do it. I mean, yeah. Edna Griffin... Angela Davis, all the civil rights people out there, yes. all the people fighting for social justice in our country. You know, the fights for for social justice 
have never been fought by wealthy people. It's been fought by working people, mm -hmm. people who've given up their lives to fight for a better system. So we see it in our country, but we have to do more. Well, thank you for sharing that. Don't mean to ramble on that. No, but thank I you. Go on and on. No, uh, Jay, uh, Joe, thanks for sharing uh, You know what keeps you up at night. And I'm sure that even if you do retire and fish, this is you. This is your journey. doesn't end until, you know, wherever that is, but it doesn't end at retirement, right? right? right. But this is how you show well, I up. Don't, I'm not going to retire. I mean, my, my <laughs> right. mentors, they never retire. <laughs> yeah. No, no, there's no such thing as retirement. No exactly. Thing. This is this is part of who you are, and it's not just a space or just a job, et cetera. You know, I, what gives me hope when it comes to corporate partners, and when you're thinking about, you know, um, people that are rich, et cetera, businesses are rich, rich in the sense that, you know, they may have profits as well, but you're seeing a lot of corporate social responsibility, that people are looking at purpose-driven mission, and how do you, you know, really look at financial gains, social gains, environmental gains, and I, I've, we're seeing more conversations around that in terms of purpose-driven or companies, organizations, institutions, academia, nonprofits, that is giving me hope and being able yes. to balance yeah. purpose yeah. with profit. And so uh, that gives me hope. And uh, yeah. hopefully we can continue to yeah. uh, see uh, more of a balance Absolutely. and a more of an opportunity to take, keep this place a better place and yeah. for those that are coming afterwards. So, you know, I feel like we can uh, talk a lot we about uh, many different topics with you, Joe. We could. Well, you, you did bring up one thing that the diversity, equity and inclusion movement that's happening within corporate America. I think that is a really good thing, but I think it's very important for corporations to realize that this work must continue. We must have proportional representation in yes. hiring. We must look at not only skills of people when they come in from brown and black communities and other communities, but we must, must make sure that we have proportionate representation or affirmative action in the hiring at all levels, from the ground floor to the corporate floor. We must yes. make sure of that. And uh, uh, corporations uh, have a big responsibility to make sure that this is done right. We cannot just have a few people yeah. uh, from brown and black communities and other communities uh, chosen uh, for positions. We must make sure we are proportionate in representation at all levels. I think accountability matters and holding organizations and it's people big. to, to And the I do matters. applaud the corporations yeah. for many of them doing their part uh, when the Supreme Court came down, the striking down Roe versus Wade. Yep. Uh, you know, that's a big thing. And in corporations, uh, many of them are doing, doing the right thing on yeah. that. Well, let's go ahead and move on to the next segment, uh, which is what's on our listeners' mind? our listeners are thinking right now listeners continue to submit your comments questions and feedback to info at diversity well we have a listener who has a question for you joe uh, usually the guest executive gets an opportunity to be able to answer we don't know yeah. what it is and who it is or what it's from but this one is from alex uh yeah, you want me Anthony, to read that? Anthony, sure. please. I will read the question, Joe. So Alex uh, says, our company is offering racial justice training, and I hear negative comments in the company by colleagues who do not want to attend. I think it is very important for everyone to attend, but I don't know how to approach them to make them feel differently about it. Any suggestions? Mandatory okay. meetings. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's... Uh, 
This is uh, this for Alex. This is a question regarding his where he works. Correct? Yes, uh, it sounds like yes. He says he hears negative comments by colleagues at work. There's they're offering racial justice training, and right. he's hearing negative comments by colleagues who don't want to attend. Um, yeah, and he so thinks it's it, important. it needs to go beyond voluntary to mandatory, and and in companies need to do that. I mean, they do they do training. Companies do training on lots of different things: safety for the sake of not only protecting workers but their but making sure they don't get high insurance claims, um, you know, things regarding, uh, uh, you know, any type of uh, EEOC type of issue mm-hmm. uh, have required mandatory meetings. Uh, when it comes to this, it, again, it needs to be mandatory. The companies really need to say, hey, listen, we're going to have a pre-work meeting. We're going to discuss this or we're going to have a lunch and learn. So it's it's very important because we do have to deal with fighting back uh, racist types of behavior. And people may not even realize that they have these behaviors until they are informed and uh, provided with uh, the type of uh, ideas, educational training, so forth and so on, to enlighten them about what they may be doing that really... Uh, falls prey to kind of racist behavior. Right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Joe, for responding to Alex's uh, thoughts and uh, that he had about this particular training. So thank you. All right. Well, we are going to move on to our next segment, Joe, our final segments, and we've got a surprise for you. So if you'll give me a minute, I'm going to pop and uh, grab our little little surprise. <laughs> you'll love it, Joe. Yes. So this is what we call right. a diversity thumb ball. It's a soft, kind of a soccer ball size, but it's extremely soft. And it has different prompts and questions on it. Um, mm-hmm. We love using this tool. It's a great icebreaker. And um, if you were here in the studio with us, Joe, we would have you. We toss it to you, and wherever your thumb lands, that's the question that or prompt that you read out loud and authentically respond. We'll still play it with you, even if you're not in the studio, as Anthony will throw it to me, and I'll catch it for you, and I'll share what yours is, and you just respond, and then we'll just go back and forth with the, the two of us here as well. How hard should I throw it, Joe? Soft or should I throw it hard at her? Throw it hard. All right. <laughs> and I thought you liked me, Joe. <laughs> Describe a time you witnessed bias or discrimination. I think that's an easy one for you. Oh, wow. First time was, well, actually in high school. Uh, kind of some derogatory statements were made. And, of course, I experienced more of that when I was working uh at, uh, at a warehouse at UPS. And then of course I did experience that more when I was working in Washington DC uh, in the Teamsters Union, I had to travel throughout the country. So there were areas uh, in the South and uh, uh, that uh, really had uh, some kind of race, had uh, some severe racist behavior going on. So yeah, there you go. All right, well, we're gonna play with you. So uh, you want to throw it to me next? Eric Sadek is gonna throw it to me, and I'll catch. See, I'm answer. a kind person. I will throw it <laughs> soft, not like you okay. and Joe. All right. What's the biggest challenge when it comes to achieving social equality? Ooh, that's a heavy. I don't think I've had that one before. You I have think, not. Yeah. I, I think the biggest challenge um, is 
is continuing to keep the groundswell. We talked earlier about social change in this country and in this world, as we're seeing in Iran, happens when people converge and we coalesce and we have a groundswell of support. And I, I don't know how to, I think the biggest challenge is always maintaining that momentum. How do we continue to main, maintain mm -hmm. the momentum every time we show change it's always been because of people and i might in particularly say it's been driven by a lot of young people if we look right, at many right. movements it's by young people and, we, and we've seen that how do we capitalize on that and continue to uh to maintain that momentum um, well you know focus? the biggest challenge is just thinking about it yeah <laughs> it's I, just thinking about it it's just uh you know what happened in 2020 was a good example a good primer of how things were done in the 30s and 40s you got to get out in the streets yeah and you also got to vote. Yeah. Absolutely. If you're just thinking about it and if you're in a silo and if you're just floating around in social media, even TikTok, and not doing anything, you, it's, it's not yeah. good. So yeah. just thinking about it yeah. is not enough. That's the biggest problem. Absolutely. Ready, Seneca? Yes. All right. Be kind. <laughs> Thank you. Oh. You just, uh, how did There's I end a, up catching the same one as you? Wow. You should go play the lottery today. <laughs> that was a first <laughs> Yeah, in order to win the lottery, I need to buy a ticket, right? <laughs> in what way is your world diverse? In what way is my world diverse? Yes. It's for, it's for Sadika. Yeah, my world is diverse because every time I walk out my door, it's it's diverse. I live in a very diverse area of Des Moines. <laughs> you know, yeah. I spend a lot of time on the phone with lots of different communities. There's not a week or day that goes by where I'm not kind of fully engaged. Yes, thank That's you. That's an Jeff. answer. Yes, yes. <laughs> so if I had an answer in what way is your world diverse, I would say that coming to America, I wanted it to be a melting pot. I wanted to drink the assimilation Kool-Aid. And I think about how would my life be different now if I was born in India and raised where I was born it wouldn't be no different than maybe another rural community here in America. Your only your exposure is what enhances your cultural competency. So there's no blame shame. I never blame or shame anyone for their upbringing, because the more that we can uh, interact with differences, it breaks down biases and it enhances our cultural competency. So for me, looking back, it was just because I was came to America as a 19 month old baby as an immigrant, mm -hmm. hence my worldview is extremely diverse and this is before technology yeah well i hope you enjoyed the Powerful, diversity thumb ball <laughs> thank you i'm glad you enjoyed thank it you, joe thank you well as we wrap up uh, yeah. is there any last uh, advice you would have for our listeners to really help them enhance their own equity diversity inclusion and engagement journey as leaders well, they should reach out to us in LULAC and engage. We have 21 councils here in Iowa. You know, they can reach out to us, LULAC, uh, iowalatinos.org, iowalatinos.org. You know, we'll be more than happy to give them suggestions and to engage with others uh, within our community and other communities because we are, uh, we do want to build those coalitions, those united front efforts. And um, for people who want to get involved, 
we have some easy ways for them to do that. But it it will require face-to-face discussions. Right. Well, thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Joe, for joining us today. We appreciate that, and we hope our listeners uh, did enjoy our conversation today with you. So thank you for your time. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Joe. It was a pleasure getting to know you better and uh, for keeping it real as that's what Diversity Straight Up is all about. So thank you so much again for your time. Yep. Look Take forward care. to seeing you all vote on November 8th. And a shout out again to our sponsors, ACT, Alliant Energy, and Cedar Rapids Bank and Trust. This show is produced by LAS Media Group. A special thanks to our listeners, as without you, we wouldn't be here. So please continue to help us grow subscriber base by sharing our show with others, liking, commenting, etc. Love this episode of Diversity Straight Up? Then head over to the most popular podcast and audio platforms to subscribe, rate, and review us. We'd love to hear from you. Hit us up and send your questions, comments, and suggestions to info at diversitystraightup.com. Remember, wherever you live, work, and play, our backyards are increasingly global. And as we say on our show, diversity straight up. Keeping it real.